WPFW, Building a Better World, one broadcast at a time. Welcome to The Collision. The Collision, where sports and politics smash. Thursdays at 10 a.m. and on iTunes and Google Play. WPFW, Washington, D.C. WPFW News in Washington. This is Monday Morning QB, a news program with a point of view. Today is Monday, February 5th, 2024. I'm Sue Goodwin. And I'm Chris Spangert-Drowns. Today on the show, how new laws aim to limit what schools can teach about race and racism in our country. Plus, why local voters support progressive policy amid efforts to revise the D.C. tax code. All that and more. Plus, we are in Pledge Drive. Call 202-588-9739 and make a donation to support Jazz and Justice Radio in the nation's capital. Stay with us. For Monday Morning QB... I'm Sue Goodwin. We are now almost a week into Black History Month, and teachers across the country are rolling out their lesson plans aimed at helping students understand more about the Black experience in American life. And increasingly, for some teachers, that means employing restraint. That's because Republican-controlled legislatures across the country are advancing measures to limit what can be said in the classroom about racism, sexism, and issues of systemic inequality. According to an Axios analysis of data from the National Conference of State Legislatures, at least 14 states have passed legislation since 2022 restricting how educators can discuss our nation's racial past and dozens more are considering such measures. To get an idea of the kinds of challenges teachers are facing and how they are responding, we spoke with Summer Brugal, who is one of the reporters with Axios who is covering this story. And she began by explaining in broad terms what these laws entail. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one of the first things that I think we should point out is that these laws are written pretty vaguely. I think a lot of people would would argue and agree with that statement. But in kind of the general scope, these laws are really prohibiting discussions around race and racism and discussions that really would kind of uh, pit or describe certain people as more privileged or more oppressed than another person based on their race. And I, I will say I'm also coming to this discussion with a very, you know, Florida focus, I guess, um, just given my time here in Florida. But, you know, at least in, in Florida, these laws also really want to uh, emphasize that we can't have discussions that could make some students or all students feel uncomfortable in having discussions about race and racism um, or any sort of uh, idea or topic or theme that would make a student feel uncomfortable or feel bad about their own race and uh, their own history. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of in, in broad terms what, what those mean. But as vague and broad as some of these laws may be, there is one specific concept that is being banned by many, and that is critical race theory, or CRT as it is known. This is a way of thinking that explores how racism is systemic in our nation's institutions. And despite evidence that the college-level coursework isn't actually being taught in K-12 through classrooms, it has become a lightning rod for conservatives, a position that Summer Brugal says has evolved over time. I think we first heard critical race theory during the pandemic um, around 2020 after the murder of George Floyd. And really kind of I started hearing it come into school board meetings kind of after the mask discussions, like whether or not students should be forced to wear masks or required to wear masks, I guess is the better term. Um, and I think the discussions kind of played into this idea that school districts and teachers 
shouldn't be telling students what or how they should feel or what they should be doing. And critical race theory has been kind of championed by conservatives and GOP lawmakers as this catch-all for what they deem to be inappropriate discussions about race and racism, and oftentimes incorrectly what they think are these discussions. Because as, as you've noted, CRT is not discussed in K through 12 schools. It's a higher education way of teaching. But I think I think it really kind of played into the discussions around individual freedoms and the need for educators and the discussions around the need for educators to focus on kind of these core basic subjects and not move away to discuss anything outside of the rubric. You know, we saw a lot of discussions around that time when, you know, the country was really having discussions and reckonings around race and racial discrimination. You know, we saw those class those discussions kind of seep into the classrooms naturally because students, um, you know, have access and are very involved. Young people are very active in their communities um, and they had questions. So I think people and teachers started having these discussions um, and started addressing issues. And I think a lot of, um, you know, mostly conservatives felt that those were inappropriate for the classroom and CRT kind of became the catch-all for all of that, um, if that makes sense. Another focus in efforts to restrict how the history of race and racism is taught in American schools is the 1619 Project, a collection of essays and stories published in the New York Times in 2019 and covering how the enslavement of people was central to the very founding and building of this nation. So why have numerous states taken steps to prohibit teaching or using the 1619 Project in public schools? Well, I think because the 1619 Project challenges essentially what we've been learning so far. It challenges a lot of the perceptions and a lot of what, you know, a lot of people believe to be the true story of this nation. And I think it it does make a lot of people uncomfortable. And I think the 1619 Project was kind of this perfect scapegoat, if that's the right word, to say, well, look, this is being taught and, you know, this is being pushed on us, this different idea that is uh, that is new, that is different from the one that we are uh, accustomed to um, and the one that we've adopted already. Um, And so I think the 1619 Project became this easy target. And of course, it was from, you know, the New York Times, which had become a frequent also target of, you know, the media um, and, you know, this leftist idea of, you know, the media pushing something. So I think it kind of was something tangible that parents and lawmakers could look at and say, see, we aren't crazy. Like this is being pushed on us sort of thing. So what does all this mean for teachers who are out of compliance with these laws? First of all, it puts them and their schools at risk. In some states, schools may lose funding if they fail to enforce these laws. As for individual teachers, depending on the state, they could face fines or even a threat to their employment. Um, you know, at least in, in Florida, they, they, they do, there is a possibility that their license could be revoked. And I'm not familiar with any cases in particular, but, you know, there was a teacher, uh, not necessarily for discussing race and racism, but back in, I think I want to say May of last year, there was a teacher up in Jacksonville who was under investigation for um, that story made national headlines for showing a movie and one of the characters happened to have been gay. And so that teacher was under investigation and, you know, faced potential decertification. So, So that is the kind of potential end result. In light of these potential punishments, there is evidence that teachers are changing how they teach. According to a RAND Corporation study released last year, about one quarter of the teachers they contacted said they had revised their instructional materials or teaching practices to limit or exclude discussions of race and gender which, as Summer Brugal explains, should be expected. Kind of going back to my what I said at the beginning was, you know, these laws are written in a way that leaves a lot of room for interpretation. And I think that uncertainty and that gray area and the not knowing if or what actually does fall into a prohibited category is leading a lot of teachers to just forego topics or kind of skirting around certain conversations. And this can be especially true for younger teachers. 
that's, I think, where the concern is for teachers who are deciding or potentially thinking of skipping a topic uh, or just kind of skirting around a topic because they are so early in their career and they're they're still figuring things out. So what people are telling me is it, it really does depend on the teacher. And some teachers have decided uh, not just with Black History Month, but throughout the year to move forward with discussions to kind of tackle these discussions head on. And I think the ones who are doing that feel more confident based on the school environment, their community, and, and kind of the relationship that they have within that community. Of course, we also have to talk about what these restrictions mean for students. As Summer Brugal and her colleague Russell Contreras reported just last week, one of these concerns is how they have the potential to underscore disparities in education given the regional differences in the allocation of resources devoted to teaching about the impact of racism in American history and contemporary life. There's always been a disparity in education, depending on where you are across the country, um, because it is, you know, different states can enact different rules and regulations and, and how to approach things. So I think that that disparity has always been there. But I think what, what we are seeing is kind of this gap or this disparity becoming more stark, if that makes sense. And we don't necessarily know what the long-term effects of these, uh, of these new laws will be because it, they're still very new. They're still with, you know, within the last handful of years, they're still being played out in, in schools. Um, so while we don't know the long-term effects that we can be seeing is, you know, at least again in Florida, we are seeing removal of books. We are seeing the removal of titles. We are seeing uh, restricted access to certain things. And I think when we talk about the disparity, we will see that across the country, certain groups of students, depending on where they are, will have either more access to things or less access to things. And when you have less access to things, I think a lot of people that I've spoken to, particularly groups in Florida that are working against these, you know, rules and regulations, their concern is that when you have less access to different voices, different experiences, different, just different everything. Um, the less access you have, the, the, the less just kind of ability to think beyond the classroom, if that makes sense. Um, and I, I think a lot of people, again, like I said, that are working in this space, the concern is that when you restrict access or restrict titles, you're restricting different voices and experiences. And, and most importantly, probably, is that representation that you're missing out on and the kind of variety of thought that a wide uh, or a vast array of titles could allow a student to really learn and, and kind of get different ideas and, and pick and choose and learn which ones they resonate with as opposed to having a very few amount of titles and, and kind of being restricted to those. There are, however, some teachers, as Summer Brugal has indicated, that will take the risk and are pushing the boundaries of what they are teaching in spite of what the laws may say. And support for that kind of commitment goes beyond the classroom. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in one hand, we do have some teachers who are still going to have these discussions um, and going to discuss topics about race and racism in the classroom and going to use these supplemental materials um, and going to do the best they can within within this space. Um, but then we have these other groups, you know, I think, you know, we have groups like Florida Freedom to Read. Yeah, what they're doing is, um, you know, really tracking book bans and book challenges across the state to kind of find trends and to challenge those challenges, um, to push back on the reasons why those are being challenged. Um, they're requesting um, public records across school districts to understand what school districts are doing to change their own way they operate to meet these laws, to, to showcase to the public how these laws are affecting, uh, you know, districts behind closed doors. So, so yeah, and I think, you know, Florida Freedom Treat is one of the better examples. They are out of Orlando area, uh, but they do a lot of work across the state. Um, and they are really a vocal, uh, you know, group that is pushing back on the, on the narrative that, that these books need to be removed and, and challenging the, you know, the very challenges that are trying to get them removed in the first place. That was 
Summer Brugal, a reporter with Axios, speaking to how new laws are being enacted that will limit how black history is being taught in schools. To see a range of stories Axios has posted on this issue, visit axios.com. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Sue Goodwin. Greetings, listeners. Before we move on with the rest of today's program, we want to remind you that WPFW is listener-supported radio, and we are now in our winter membership drive. Our goal this hour is $500, and we are asking you now to help us get there. And to do that, you can call 202-588-9739 or pledge online, anywhere, anytime, at WPFWFM.org. The theme for this drive is WPFW, Revolutionary Radio for Revolutionary Times. And every weekday, with our newscasts, and every week with programs like this one, Monday Morning QB, Our goal is to partner with you in reaching a greater awareness of the events happening in our world, a greater understanding of why they are happening, and a greater ability to use that knowledge to bring about change. It's hard work and we work hard at it because we believe knowledge is power and the kind of knowledge conveyed every day on WPFW is an essential part of our effort to bring about greater social and economic justice. But the very simple fact is we cannot do it without you. That cannot be said enough. It is your financial support that keeps this station on the air and allows this program and the entire news department to fulfill our commitment to you. Once again, our goal this hour is $500 And to help us get there, you can call 202-588-9739. You can pledge online, anywhere, anytime at WPFWFM.org. And thank you for your support. By an overwhelming margin, voters in Washington, D.C. support local progressive policy options to boost food security, expand child care, and improve affordable housing. This is according to polling published last month by Data for Progress and the D.C. Fiscal Policy Institute, which also reaffirmed the district's deep racial economic divide. The polling came on the heels of the release of a package of local tax policy recommendations from a group called the Tax Revision Commission. That commission is convened every 10 years with newly appointed members to review and recommend changes to the local tax code. Included in the commission's recommendations were some proposals mirroring local voters' desires, including a child tax credit funded by new taxes on businesses and high-value homes. The recommendations also include a series of tax cuts for businesses. The Commission's mandate was focused, but included building a more resilient post-pandemic tax base, improving competitiveness, and supporting racial equity. Erica Williams is Executive Director of the D.C. Fiscal Policy Institute and a Commissioner on the Tax Revision Commission. She joined Monday Morning QB to explain the work of the Commission and its proposals, including on affordable housing. We had a proposal to expand a major support that we have in place already that helps to ensure that property taxes don't exceed a certain level of a homeowner's income. So this is an important way to help longtime residents who might be getting sort of priced out of the district because their incomes are too low to afford the property taxes on their now 
much higher valued homes, this is a way to help keep them in their homes and help ensure that they can transfer the that asset on to their families later on in life. It's an important tool that we already have in place, but that hasn't kept up with increasing home values in DC. And so we can expand that and we propose to expand that in a way that would make it more effective. We also talked about some ways to improve efficiency, competitiveness and administrative processes. So for example, reducing the number of people who have to file a personal property tax when they don't actually owe personal property taxes and so forth. So there's lots of good stuff in there that I hope doesn't fall to the wayside just because we don't have consensus. It seems notable to me that the the commission purposefully chose to produce recommendations that were revenue neutral as a package. Can you talk briefly about why that choice was made and whether it limited the scale or scope of the recommendations that you could make? Yeah, you know, that was something that was sort of self-imposed and I suppose it wasn't etched in stone, but it was seemed to be tacit agreement we had that we had some commissioners who would want to raise revenue and I am among those and some who would want to reduce revenue through different kinds of tax cuts. And um, so revenue neutrality was a way to try and approach compromise and consensus building. And so we made sure, and you can see if you look at the draft package, that the tax cuts proposed, whether those were for businesses or whether they were for uh, low and middle income families, were paid for through revenue raisers. And I think that that also in a moment where we are facing likely a very tight fiscal situation in the years ahead is also important because it may it would make the package sort of more palatable to lawmakers who can decide whether you raise or reduce revenue but um, are given a set of ideas that don't have to do either you know if it if it, if that package were to make it uh, to the council as as the official tax revision commission set of recommendations it would give lawmakers a lot of flexibility to to make their own decisions about which way things should go. So you mentioned the business activity tax, which is the, the largest revenue generator in the set of recommendations from the Tax Revision Commission. The letter from Chairman Anthony Williams says the, the tax would raise $275 million annually. This is a tax of, I think it's a 1.4%. And this would obviously help offset some of the major revenue reducing measures, the the tax cuts that you mentioned. Can you briefly explain what this business activity tax is and discuss why that tax appears to be under under threat now? Do you think it'll stay in the final recommendations? Yeah, so a business activity tax is basically instead of taxing businesses based on profits, this tax would base the tax on business activity and sort of the value added activity that any given business brings. What this allows us to do, we have limitations on our ability to tax income in the district. So right now the federal government and case law says that we cannot tax the income of non-residents. We have not a small number not an insubstantial number of businesses in the district that are structured so that the profits of the business flow through to the owners as income. So think about lobbying firms or legal firms or accounting firms or any number of other businesses that are structured so that the partners of the business or the owners receive the profits as income and they pay tax on that income through the personal income tax. Now we as a district are not allowed to tax their income if they don't live here in DC. Uh, This is specific to the district and not some, every other state in the nation is able to, and cities that are are allowed to levy an income tax are able to tax the income earned within their boundaries, no matter where the people live. But we are prohibited from doing this specifically by the federal government. Having a business activity tax or this sort of value added tax shifts where taxation happens. So instead of taxing the income 
passed on to owners, we would be taxing the entity itself, the business entity itself. And what that allows us to do is get around that federal limitation and make sure that economic activity that's happening here in the district, because our economy allows for it, that we are able to tax that and have it contribute to the public goods and services made. Right now, we have a very unfair system where locally owned businesses, no matter how they're structured, pay tax here in the district to you know pay for a whole array of public goods and services and those where the owners that are set up as pass-through entities and where the owners live outside of the district do not have to contribute in fact they pay tax dollars based on the activity the the economic activity here in in the district to the state they live in. So Virginia and Maryland are getting those dollars. So this is a real major issue of fairness. It's an issue of, you know, resilience, as I mentioned before, in terms of the, the size of our tax, our business tax base. And right now, um, it doesn't appear to have enough support within the Tax Revision Commission to make it through. And that is not because it's not viewed by most members of the commission as good tax policy. Uh, in my estimation, I think it has more to do with the politics of things. I think that's unfortunate because, you know, as a commission, our job really is to step back and away from the political, from the influence of different communities and to think about what is good for the district today and over the long haul. But I, I don't see a business activity tax coming out of the commission in the final package. I could be wrong. I do not have a crystal ball. But I do think it's still good policy, and it's my sincere hope that the council will take a serious look at it. We are not the first commission to recommend it uh, or, you know, come close to recommending it. The 1997 Tax Revision Commission also thought that this kind of tax would be an important policy change for D.C. In our discussion about revenue neutrality, you made the point that the recommendations being revenue neutral makes them more legitimate or or could be seen as more legitimate in the eyes of the mayor and the the council. If the business activity tax is dropped from the set of recommendations, does this delegitimize the other recommendations in a way where they will get tossed out more quickly? I mean, will the, the child tax credit, for example, be under threat because there is no bat involved? I think that it raises the question for the commission, and this is something we have yet to iron out, of whether or not we continue with revenue neutrality. And if we do, that likely means, you know, some set of tax cuts that were part of the draft package will have to come out. There's an argument that could be made, and I think it's a strong one, that if you take out the business tax revenue raiser, then you probably should eliminate the business tax cuts. Others may not see it that way. Um, we will find out. <laughs> I think um, so. It's I think it's still an open question of whether you know some of the tax changes I mentioned that are benefit to low and moderate and middle income residents and families remain. I, that's a choice that's still yet to be made that we could use the remaining revenue raisers in the package to try and support some of those proposals. Um, or there could be majority of commissioners who want to see things go a different way. We don't know yet. And there's still a lot of discussion and probably debate yet to be had now that we are sort of having to, you know, backtrack and, and figure out what the way forward is. Um, the, the recommendations as written also contain some caveats, namely that the district faces uh, what are referred to as, quote, uncertainty with negative bias, which is talking about issues including crime rates, the persistence of remote work, um, the potential loss of sports teams to Northern Virginia, some other potential issues. I'm curious what your assessment is of these potential negative developments. Could they substantially damage the district's fiscal health and undermine the commission's recommendations, whatever they end up being? Yeah, I think that it's really important. And I've made this case to the commission um, from the beginning that we really stay focused on how we strengthen our economy 
by strengthening the situation of people and businesses who are here right now. So when we think about what are the ways to stay resilient, to build back, to adapt in a time of economic shock, to my mind and and based on what I'm seeing, that means really focusing on ending economic hardship and the level to which it's experienced here, taking aim at issues of affordability in the district and making sure that all residents and families can actually be here and thrive. And, you know, really thinking about long-term, what are the changes we need to be making so that we have the full contribution of every resident in the district, that everybody's able to give their fullest because they're able to live to their fullest. I think those are the best ways to strengthen our economy over the long haul and to be able to um, weather the kinds of storms that are inevitably going to hit us in any given year or decade. Um, you know, we just went through a massive public health and economic crisis that was global in nature. It was multiple years long. It radically disrupted our lives and our economy. And it will take some time and some adjustment to get back to some semblance of normality. And by normal, I don't mean back to what we had before, but to whatever, you know, the new sort of equilibrium is in terms of some of those factors you mentioned, like remote work and the downtown area and, um, you know, what our economy looks like. There, there are a lot of things that are outside of our control. We can't control where sports teams decide to go. You know, and frankly, I would hope that our economic development strategies actually are deeper and go beyond housing sports teams. We need we need strategies that actually strengthen our economy from the bottom up. You know, downtown is not the only part of town that's hurting. There are places across this city that have been hurting for a long, long time and haven't gotten what they needed. We have chronic levels of poverty and unemployment for Black residents that span decades. And if we really wanted to have the strongest economy possible, we would take aim at those things. So um, I'm really hopeful that we walk into this next budget season and, and the several ahead of us staying focused on that as as a public, as advocates, as lawmakers, staying focused on the need to resource affordable housing, both creation and preservation, on ending chronic homelessness, on making sure that we have affordable childcare for every family, on ensuring that we are making investments in the amenities that some communities have needed for a long time, whether that be health clinics or transportation um, or grocery stores. And, you know, making sure that we are investing in kids and communities by reducing poverty and hardship. On that note, the, the DC Fiscal Policy Institute, along with Data for Progress, recently published polling data showing widespread support among DC residents for uh, local public investments in, in food security and child care and housing. I'm curious whether this widespread support can eventually turn into political pressure to actually turn these proposals into into policy. I mean, you mentioned the the politics kind of infecting the commission's work, and I'd imagine that in order to get a, a bat and the kinds of things that a bat would fund actually into policy, there needs to be political pressure from from the grassroots, from the other side you know, what is required to turn what is clearly overwhelming support for these sorts of public investments into real political pressure to enact them? Yeah, well, you're right. We did polling with Data for Progress and found that there are a lot of residents here in the district, a lot of voters who are experiencing economic hardship, especially when you look at that by race and ethnicity, um, you know, just comparing Black and white voters in the district, 42% of Black voters in D.C. said that they're having trouble affording rent compared to 13% of, of white voters. 
51% of black voters said they're having trouble affording groceries compared to 16% of white voters. So we have big disparities, but we have a lot of hardship um, within particular communities. And, you know, I just remind everybody that we are a majority black and brown uh, city. So this is not a small thing to see that there's a lot of struggle within communities of color. At the same time, you know, voters, our polling showed that voters strongly support more public investment in increasing food security, in expanding affordable childcare, in uh, building and preserving more affordable housing, in ending homelessness, in creating a local child tax credit to take aim at child poverty. So there's a lot of support for these investments. And really to make that happen, you know, lawmakers need to hear from voters in a more robust way. And I think, you know, a lot of these investments are going to require raising revenue. And so we, you know, very much need for voters in the district to be engaged and to come out in support, not only of the investments, but also of progressive and racially equitable ways of raising revenue, including something like a business activity tax or uh, higher property tax on multi-million dollar properties um, or other things that weren't part of the tax revision commission's package like a strengthening our capital gains tax the lion's share of which get paid by those with incomes over a million dollars right so there's lots of options for raising revenue in progressive and racially equitable ways that would allow us to make these investments but in order for that to happen people really have to make it known that they support that and that you know, they want to see their representatives here in local government make that set of decisions. That's Erica Williams, executive director of the D.C. Fiscal Policy Institute and a commissioner on the Tax Revision Commission. Learn more about the D.C. Fiscal Policy Institute by visiting dcfpi.org. That's dcfpi.org. And learn more about the Tax Revision Commission by visiting dctaxrevisioncommission.org. That's dctaxrevisioncommission.org. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. We are in Pledge Drive this morning, and we need your support to reach this show's goal of $600. Your donations go to paying WPFW's small but dedicated staff, funding improvements to our signal strength, and maintaining proper equipment for music and public affairs special programs. To become a sustainer of this great radio station, you can call 202-588-9739 or visit us online at WPFW.org. The piece we just heard about local policy and tax reform touches on the importance of independent grassroots media during times of economic difficulty and political turmoil. In an election season when media consumers are buried under political advertisements and misinformation skewed by commercial interests, local community radio can serve as an antidote. We are committed to continuing to cover the local issues that matter to our listeners even while we tackle the national and geopolitical stories of the day. That is our mandate, and we stick to it because our base of support is the community, not commerce. WPFW prides itself on public affairs programs like Monday Morning QB, where, unlike in commercial media, we give ample time to guests to explain their views and positions, allowing for holistic discussion of topics important to lived experience in this city and around the world. We don't cut away to commercial break every few minutes, which disrupts the flow of information and constrains news pieces to brief bullet point explanations. At WPFW, we value digging deep on the political and social questions of the day and airing voices and perspectives typically marginalized by commercial media. But we can't do it alone. Call 202-588-9739 to make a pledge today. That's 202-588-9739. Or visit us online at wpfw.org to become a sustainer. 
That's WPFW.org. Back to the show. Israel and Hamas could soon reach a deal for a ceasefire and release some of the hostages still being held by the militant group in Gaza. The proposed deal calls for a two-month pause in fighting and is intended to set up talks for a permanent ceasefire. Reporter Asia Beckham spoke with an expert for more on this. My name is Phyllis Bennis. I work at the Institute for Policy Studies. I'm also the international advisor for Jewish Voice for Peace. And I write and speak about issues of U.S. wars and foreign policy, uh, Middle East policy in particular, Palestine, Palestinian rights, threats against Iran. What are leaders and the Jewish Voice for Peace standing for at this stage of the Hamas-Israel war? The critical factor is a ceasefire. That's the key to stopping the genocide what the International Court of Justice has acknowledged is likely a genocide. Uh, it's also key to stopping the rising tensions, the escalation that is going on in the Red Sea and throughout the region, which is basically escalated by U.S. actions. The responses are very much rooted in opposition to the Israeli assault on Gaza and U.S. unconditional support for that Israeli assault. The U.S., of course, is providing weapons, money, protection, impunity, to Israel as it carries out a genocide. So there's massive rage across the region uh, towards the US and somewhat the UK in response to that. And that's very much at the root of what it would take the Biden administration who talks a lot about wanting to avoid the expansion of the war to the region as a whole. The one thing they could do to not have it be expanding would be to declare a ceasefire and stop sending the weapons and the cash and the protection to Israel. That would be the one thing that would prevent this kind of escalation. They've chosen to do the opposite. And can you share your findings in the book that you authored entitled From Stones to Statehood, The Palestinian Uprising? Mm -hmm. I was traveling in Palestine at the beginning of what was known as the first intifada. Well, of course, at the time, it wasn't called the first intifada. It was just called the intifada because no one knew there would be another. Uh, But it was an uprising that was sparked at, in December of 1987 by what was really an accident in Gaza uh, that sparked, as these things do, unexpectedly, an uprising that spread across Gaza and quickly to the West Bank uh, that was in opposition to the increasing uh, crackdown of the Israeli occupation. The areas of the West Bank and Gaza had been uh, under Israeli occupation since the war in 1967. And it was now 20 years later, Palestinians had virtually no rights, the existence of checkpoints around the area. It was not as bad by any means as it has been for the last, say, 20 years, where you have uh, a wall, a giant wall that surrounds the West Bank and, and moves into the West Bank so that land of the West Bank is actually taken up Uh, by that wall, leaving more land that belongs to Palestine on the Israeli side. But it was a very repressive, the rise of this uprising, which the Arabic word intifada was sort of chosen by Palestinians as the best word. And it's interesting because while we, we sort of say as shorthand that intifada means uprising, it's not exactly that. The, the, the word in Arabic comes from the root nafada, And it implies something about a shaking up or a shaking out. And it was significant because there was as much of a challenge to some of the internal uh, social realities of Palestinian society as there was opposition to the Israeli occupation. So it was a moment when women's rights was somehow on the agenda in a whole new way, when children, young people, had a voice. Uh, And it was not only the, the rich historic leadership that that of of men that would be able to to speak and uh, I was there very early in that process working with a photographer from the small newspaper I was working with at the time in California and we realized there was something much bigger here that was underway that was not just a a temporary uprising but this was something that was going to have 
global significance. And I think we were right in that assessment. It was at a moment when the internal uh, Palestinian actions, which were overwhelmingly nonviolent, there were strikes, there were uh, there were daily notices posted around town secretly by the underground leadership of the uprising, outlining a calendar every day that today will be a day of a national strike. All stores will be closed. Schools will be closed. Tomorrow will be a day of agricultural uh, self-sufficiency. And there would be training and seeds made available for people to build gardens in their backyards. This was a period when the Israeli occupation forces were relying a lot on uh, closures. A, a village might be closed for, for a month where nobody would be allowed in and out. There would be uh, curfews imposed for days at a time sometimes where anybody stepping foot outside their door could be shot and killed. Um, but so there was an effort to get people to be growing tomatoes and cucumbers, able to to grow their own food for those moments when they could not they could not move around. Uh, it was a very important moment in Palestinian history, uh, and that's what we were documenting. My the photographer who I traveled with, Neil Cassidy, uh, was the first foreign journalist to be shot during the uprising. Uh, now, of course, that's uh, a much more common occurrence, shall we say. But at the time, it was sort of a big deal because an American journalist had been had been shot. He was very lucky. It was he was able to get out of the hospital in just a few days, and he was fine. He was able to take extraordinary photographs of people's lives during the Intifada, and we decided to divide the book. I wrote the text, which was largely based on interviews with people. It was largely the words of Palestinians themselves. But we decided to divide the book into sections based on both uh, locations, so various towns, refugee camps that we had spent time in, and sectors of the society. So there was a section on health workers, a section on women, uh, a section on resistance fighters. It was an opportunity to bring back to the United States uh, a vision of what it looked like on the ground during this period that was getting a lot of publicity, but without much information about what it really looked like. Phyllis, what do you think the future of Palestinian people? I can't answer that. I'm not a Palestinian. The Palestinian people have agency. They will create their own history as they have in the past and as they will in the future. Right now, I think what's more important for us in this country is that our obligation is to demand a ceasefire. The role that our government with our tax money in our name is playing in enabling genocide is something that should be so thoroughly unacceptable by anybody in this country that it's an obligation that goes beyond anything I think we've ever faced before. It's now also a question of international law. The International Court of Justice just last week issued its ruling saying that as a preliminary, uh, a preliminary uh, recognition that there is a good chance that Israel's actions in Gaza do qualify under the terms of the Genocide Convention as being a genocide. And Israel is therefore obligated to carry out six specific acts to stop this genocidal war. The United States is not only complicit in that genocide by refusing to stop the genocide, the obligations of every country that's the party to the Genocide Convention, which is 153 countries around the world, the obligation on each one of them is to do everything in its power to stop a potential genocide and to do everything in its power to end a genocide that might be underway already. The U.S. has refused to do both. And beyond that, the U.S. is actually guilty, in my view, of the separate crime of complicity under the Genocide Convention by directly providing the weapons, the planes, the, the guns, the ammunition, and the billions of dollars, $4 billion a year to start with of our money every year that goes directly to the Israeli military without any conditions, as well as providing impunity for Israeli leaders, making sure that they are never held accountable in the United Nations, in the International Criminal Court, or anywhere else. See, we pay taxes. Our money is being used to carry out a genocide. That makes us complicit. That puts an enormous obligation on us to do everything we can to stop it. That's why the work right now of organizations across the country, it's certainly Jewish Voice for Peace has, has played a huge role in that movement. The Palestinian rights organizations 
play the leading role in all of that. But it's also trade unions. It's also women's organizations and environmental justice organizations and immigrant rights groups. Ceasefire. This is the urgent question of our day. Why is there widespread censorship and many countries backing Israel, although there are human rights violation claims? I think it depends what countries you're talking about. If we're talking about the United States, which sets the terms for countries that are closely aligned with it, the U.S. is relying and the pro-Israel forces in Congress, the pro-Israel lobbies, there are several. Uh, their view, I think, is that they have recognized two important things. One, that they have lost young Jews as supporters that they could take for granted. In the past, it was always assumed that Jews growing up in the United States would grow up as great supporters of Israel. It's how I grew up as a, as a kid in California. If you had any identity as a Jew, it meant supporting Israel. That was the only option. We didn't really ever think about it very much. It was just, it was a given. It's not a given anymore. So young Jews in this country are growing up thinking of themselves in the context of coming to political consciousness in the, in the context of the Black Lives Matter movement, in the context of, of Me Too, in the context of the immigrant rights struggles. So it's a very different question when you grow up identifying with a broader social justice movement and that defining your Jewish identity in the context of that movement, you're going to come to a very different conclusion about Israel than I did as a kid, uh, where I never even thought about it. I just took it for granted that Israel was the good guys. That's not true anymore. And they're worried about that because they know that when this generation of young people grows up and is controlling these traditional Jewish uh, community organizations and agencies that traditionally have shaped the work of the pro-Israel lobbies in this country, things are going to be very different. The other thing that's changed, uh, I think, is that you have a scenario where there is a global, uh, a global movement that is saying no uh, to Israeli atrocities, Israeli genocide. And in this country, I think those pro-Israel forces in the lobbies and elsewhere have realized that they can't win by persuasion anymore. This is not just about, we want you to go to Israel and see for yourselves. You know, they've had that kind of a project for a long time, the birthright movement and others that send young Jews to Israel to, you know, become familiar with it, to, to, be, to build some kind of uh, connection, all of that. It doesn't work anymore because now when people go, they see the reality. It can't be hidden. So you don't any longer have the ability to rely on just persuasion. So what they are doing is just trying to shut down the debate on the broadest scale possible. So that means targeting students who are very vulnerable on college campuses. It means, as we've seen in those recent outrageous hearings in Congress, going after leadership of major colleges, in this case, who just happen to be all women, some of them women of color, in each case, taking up this defense of free speech and losing their jobs for it. So this is a, it's a very dangerous reality. Some of it is coming up around the effort to redefine what anti-Semitism looks like, what's known as the IHRA, the International Holocaust Remembrance Association, drafted by an analyst on their staff who said from the beginning, this should never be a public requirement because it would violate free speech. But what it says is anti-Semitism includes many examples of criticism of Israel that have nothing to do with anti-Semitism, that have to do with the actions of a government, of a powerful nuclear armed state. And yet there is instead across this country the view that because it comes from the International Holocaust Remembrance Association, that's enough of a reason for pro-Israel forces to defend it and say, this should be the official definition of the Department of Education and of city councils and of state assemblies. And in some cases, leading to the denial of access, for example, to uh, contracts with a state, if you're not willing to sign on to a, a pledge that you will not ever boycott Israel. You, it, it's extraordinary, the lengths to which they will go. And of course, one of the effects of that is that the real anti-Semitism, which is clearly on the rise, coming out of white supremacy, which has a long and sordid history in this country, 
That anti-Semitism, the real anti-Semitism responsible for things like the slaughter of Jews at prayer in, uh, in Pittsburgh in 2018, the attack in San Diego, this kind of real anti-Semitism that is clearly on the rise, it becomes impossible to focus on challenging that kind of anti-Semitism when all of the attention is coming to what is not anti-Semitism, but is criticism of Israel. But it's still something that is a, a very powerful threat to the First Amendment, to free speech, but also to the movement for Palestinian rights, and also, ironically, to the movement against real anti-Semitism. Is there anything else that you want to share, Phyllis, that I may not have asked? I think the one thing that's so important for people to keep in mind is that right now, the issue of stopping a genocide, which means a ceasefire, is the most important thing we can be doing. We have a new tool for doing that, which is the finding of the International Court of Justice, which is something that isn't self-enforcing, unfortunately. The International Court of Justice doesn't have a police force or an army to go around the world enforcing its rulings. What it has is a statement of this incredibly influential and credible court, an international court with judges from 17 different countries who overwhelmingly agreed that the preliminary indications are that this may well be genocide. Our job is to hold that up when we meet with members of Congress, when we meet with city councils. 40 some odd cities around the US have already passed resolutions calling for a ceasefire. In Chicago, just a couple of days ago, city council was divided. It was a, it was a, a split vote and the, the mayor cast the vote to say, yes, we should take responsibility to say no to this genocide and yes to a ceasefire. That's the job that we need to be doing right now. All of this is based on ending the assault on Gaza, ending the killing of children, ending the siege that is threatening massive famine at a faster rate than experts in famine history say they have ever seen in this country. That's our job and we have a lot of work to do. And that's our show for today. There's still time to become a supporter of this great radio station. Call 202-588-9739 or visit us online at wpfw.org and pledge your support. Rest in peace and power, Askia Muhammad. Thanks to our engineers. I'm Chris Bengert-Drowns. And I'm Sue Goodwin. Thank you for listening and supporting Jazz and Justice Radio in the nation's capital. Welcome to The Collision. The Collision, where sports and politics smash. Thursdays at 10 a.m. and on iTunes and Google Play. WPFW, Washington, D.C. Brother Jamil here informing you about the D.C. Black History Celebration Committee's annual Black History Month kickoff on Saturday, February 3rd from 11 a.m. until 2 p.m. at Westminster, D.C.'s Jazz Church. The keynote speaker is none other than Professor Tom Porter on the role of black artists in the movement for justice and peace. For details, call Chuck Hicks at 202-421-8608. That's 202-421-8608. Or email History at yahoo.com. The event is free and open to the public. Westminster Church is located at 400 I Street Southwest in D.C. Again, the date is Saturday, February 3rd, from 11 a.m. until 2 p.m. WPFW, building a better world, one broadcast at a time. Gil Scott Heron said, the revolution will not be televised, and yet we've seen oppression, suffering, and resistance streamed in real time across this country and around the world from Palestine to D.C. In times like these, it's imperative to have a station like WPFW that centers justice, reflects hope, 
and fosters solidarity throughout our music and public affairs programming. From February 4th through the 24th, we offer you the opportunity to partner with us in this critical work of liberation by donating during our winter